Thank you so very much for tuning in to Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater. Let me tell you guys, today's episode is a good one. We're talking with record collector owners, Bobby and Alyssa, and we'll also hear from Franklin Matanji, an international PhD student from Kenya. He's gonna tell us about his experience as an international student and his best show ever performance. Let's get it poppin'. Hey listeners, we at the Ingler are gearing up for a busy fall season and we're gonna need some extra help making all the magic happen. The Inkler is now hiring in several departments, including box office, concessions, production, and security. Join us in our mission of promoting positive community growth through the arts and apply today. Learn more at inkler.org slash employment. Bobby and Alyssa are the co-owners and operators of Record Collector, the premier one-stop shop for all things vinyl in Iowa City. To give a little context, Record Collector was founded by Kirk Walter back in 1982, and after testing out a few different locations, the storefront ended up on Lynn Street across from the public library. Alyssa, Bobby, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to uh, come on the Best Show Ever podcast today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having us. It's awesome you do this. Okay. So, starting off with a story. I'm a sophomore in college. I'm transferring to the University of Iowa. What's the first thing I do when I get here? I email or call, I don't remember, record collector. And I say, are you guys hiring? (laughs) Which I feel like you guys probably get a lot. Um, So, I'm curious. How did you um, start your record collector journey? How did you get hired? Did you have to pass some sort of coolness test, knowledge test? You know, what did that look like? Okay, well, I shopped here a ton. So I'm from Iowa City and all through junior high and high school, shopped at the store all the time. I did it enough that employees started telling me if um, they were hiring, they would tell me about it. And then they did. Um, But then it actually was months and months and months later that that actually came to fruition. Things move a little slow around here. (laughs) But yeah, I I guess it was spending an inordinate amount of money here when I didn't even really have a job uh, (laughs) trying to spend the the little bit of money I had in high school over and over again. Yeah. And it's kind of similar for me too, because... uh... I grew up around here and yeah, I kind of knew, yeah, knew, I knew the old owner Kirk, um, cause through his son a little bit. Um, but yeah, I would just come into the store and buy records and then the employees that were there at the time would, well, give us crap to start off with. But, uh, after a while, you know, you, they figure out what your taste is and, and, uh, I don't know. At some point, it just kind of worked out, I guess. Um, So he did ask some questions, uh, most of which were kind of the basic, you know, what bands are you into or what kind of music, this and that. But uh, occasionally he would just give you a random pop-up quiz question. Uh, I I remember specifically he asked me if I knew who McKinley Morganfield was. And uh, luckily, I 
knew that that was muddy waters offhand, but the randomness of the question caught me off guard and uh, I was just lucky to answer correctly in that case. I think he still would have hired you otherwise. <laughs> yeah. I'm keeping you on your toes at least. Yeah, that's for sure. Oh, I Well, I would not have passed that test. So good on you. Um, I, one of my questions here actually is what was it like working for Kirk? Give us some more context there. I always, he was like a font of music knowledge by the time I started working here in whatever year that was 2004 or 2005. And the thing was though, he was super approachable about it all the time. So even though he knew mm. about 1 billion times more than anybody that first starts here at the store, um, he always made really good recommendations and he knew what some parts of what, you know, and Bobby's right. You know, he gave little kind of asked little questions and wanted to see what you knew, but really he wanted you to learn from working at the store and um, get to know all sorts of different music and explore it. And part of it was just getting excited about records together. You know, when we get those promos in the mail and playing them in the store as loud as we can and seeing what each of us thinks about it. And it was just kind of a good music loving experience even though he was so knowledgeable, he could have lauded it over people. That wasn't really his nature. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, One of the things that sticks with me about Kirk is that he seemed like he was always driven to learn more about new music or music that he didn't know about. So I think a lot of people get to a certain point in life where they sort of re-listen to the same records and artists that they listened to in their high school, college glory days. And they spend the rest of their life sort of recycling those, those, those albums and musical ideas over and over again. Like they'll go see the same artist they saw live 20 years ago or things like that. And Kirk was sort of the opposite. I'm not saying he didn't go back, uh, but when he did go back to listen to older records, they were probably going to be new to him. Um, he, he, you know, he listened to stuff he was also familiar with, but there was a big drive to check out new releases, to check out what the next thing was going to be. Um, so I think about that a lot, just in terms of not wanting to become complacent with things that I'm already aware of. Hmm. Um, this might be kind of a lofty question, but you know, what, what does it mean for you speaking of moving forward to continue on the legacy of Kirk and record collector, you know, in, in your own right? I don't know. It's kind of stressful. It's a, it's a long, it's a longstanding store with, and it's had a lot of different iterations, but you know, it's hard because Kirk was really part of all of those versions of Record Collector going back to 1982 before we were, like, before I was even born. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's hard to, and we certainly don't replace his music knowledge, but I think it feels great to be able to carry on the tradition of trying to bring in new music and trying to keep an eye out for what's coming out and trying to track down used stuff and talking to people about music. I think that legacy is something we can carry on, even if, if it were a long ways from where Kirk was when he left the store. I think uh, Record Collector and Kirk meant so much to so many different people and sometimes sort of contradictory things, but uh, 
it meant enough to a lot of people that they, you know, people still come in every week or month and, you know, talk about Kirk and tell us about their experiences with the store uh, at a time when we were young and knew nothing, uh, especially of the record store. So um, we know that there's a lot of people that um, have a strong attachment to, you know, the way the store was. At the same time, you know, uh, we recognize that we're not going to be, we're not, we're not going to try to be Kirk. We're going to do our own thing with it. And I think that's totally what he wanted. So, um, yeah, it's going to morph into something different than it was. Time would do that anyway. Yeah. So it, it did for Kirk too. I mean, right. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people come in and you're like, I went to college in Iowa city and I remember this location of the store and it's so cool. Um, you know, how long has it been in this location? And it's funny to tell people, you know, well, we've been here for almost 15 years in this location. And, and so it kind of lives in different points of history in different people's minds. And I think that we're kind of just going to be a new point in history in people's minds, hopefully mm. for the, for the continuation of the store. I'm sure you guys get this question all the time and maybe, maybe it becomes, you know, a little bit annoying to answer, but here we go. (laughs) Um, In this podcast, we've talked a decent amount about the ways the streaming model has affected the music industry, the multitudes of ways as a business that's directly implicated by the shift. um, You know, how do you feel about the rise of Spotify, the rise of Apple Music. What does that mean for record collector? Do you hate it? Do you resent it? Do you try to make peace with it? Basically, I guess, you know, the CD era of the 90s supposedly killed vinyl, although it never really did. Um, But records have been around the whole time, and I'm glad that our store wasn't didn't change its name to CD collector at any point. Um, Because yeah, the, for the last 20 years, vinyl has had this resurgence and, uh, and it's made all the difference to us to just have anything to sell without it. You know, we, we wouldn't exist. Um, So. Well, that's the thing too. I think digital can't really replace physical media for a lot of people because there's something beautiful and about touching what you're dealing with and having 12 by 12 art. And I like that digital lets a lot of artists get their music out there. And sometimes before it's on LP, which is frustrating, (laughs) but, um, but at least, you know, it gives, it gives artists that opportunity, but hopefully people still want to come around and look for it on physical media. The people that are interested in, in collecting and interested in having that physical tactile connection with what they, what they play. Hmm. Yeah. And what do you think about like the shift in the way that people consume music insofar as, you know, if you buy a record, you're getting an album or maybe a, a curated compilation, but with more and more today, it's, it's playlists, single songs, you know, small releases, three song EPs, you know, the way that that's shifted. I personally love an album, so that's my personal take. I love listening and starts and finish and seeing what musicians do with that. But I understand the urge to listen to to singles. And, and I mean, that's been around a long time, too. That's how music used to be sold with 45s. And even when I started working here, we still sold a lot of 12-inch records for for 
DJing. And so in a sense, part of that singles culture is also part of vinyl's history and, and DJs and, and like in-person DJs playing physical music. Um, I hope people still want to sit down and listen to an album, though. I hope it's not making people's attention span too short to enjoy that. That's okay. Yeah. Because that's what I worry about. Because I see it in myself. I'm like, between between all this, the rise of short form media, I'm like, it does feel like it can get harder and harder. Whereas I used to only listen through full albums pretty much. Now it's like, I don't know, I'm, the attention, my attention span does dwindle a bit. Yeah, that is what I, and I've been worrying about that for years. And I've, my friends have, you know, I'm just very bad at digital music in general. I've, I don't have any music on my phone. I don't stream on my, I, I don't know. I always sit down and listen to records and I hope other people will continue to do it too. I, I do think that, you know, singles sort of 45s and such have always been interesting to me. Uh, there's a lot of obscure soul or, or folk music or different things like that, where an artist literally only ever put out 145 or something back in 1972. And, uh, some of that's being compiled now and put back out and things like that into, you know, nicely composed compilations and things like that. And I think that's fun too. That's kind of harkens back to people making mixtapes for, for loved ones and friends and things like that. So I don't know. I think there's a place for it. I just think that whole albums are great too. And it's hard to, hard to argue against like an album that is just a plus front to back. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but also there's quite a bit of fun to be had in making a mixtape still or the equivalent of a online playlist. Right. Okay. Here's another unfair question for you both. <laughs> Best, either coolest record you've seen come through the store or the, the best one that you own, your personal fave. I was worried you were going to ask this question. I literally just thought of it. I should. <laughs> this is what I should have said ahead of time, but I literally just thought of this. I was like, oh, duh. Well, I, I was worried about that because I'm so bad at I'm so bad at determining uh, bests of anything. Even when we make a year end list, I get a lot of anxiety about it. Um. <laughs> I'm a savage, Alyssa. Yeah, maybe the question is, you know, house is on fire. What do you grab first? Oh, no. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Maybe that's a good. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. <laughs> Got to go with the instinct. Um. For me, it's probably Eugene McDaniel's Headless Heroes of the Apocalypse, um, which is a weird record that uh, came out on Atlantic, but was supposedly shelved after the promo copies came out due to Spyro Agnew directly reaching out and asking Atlantic to uh, halt the distribution of that record, um, just because he didn't like the political leanings of the content, I guess. But it's a cool record. It's unique. Um, that's kind of what I think about. But Very juicy. I think there would be, I mean, kind of what I would save is kind of nostalgic stuff, though, to a certain degree. Like things I got from bands I played with, you know, when I bought when they were on tour. Really good show I went to and I got the record there or something, sure. you know, Kirk gave me just as an aside, like, oh, I think you'd like this, you know. Hmm. 
I think I'd probably die in the fire is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent answer. And that is the correct answer. A true fan. Well, you two, thank you so much for enduring these questions, um, throwing me, throwing you curveballs. Um, and yeah, thanks for coming on to, uh, talk a little bit about record collector with us today. For sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. We'll be right back in conversation with Franklin Matangi after a quick word from the English development division. Did you know that you could be promoting your business, organization, or event to Best Show Ever podcast listeners by placing an ad here on the show? Sponsoring Best Show Ever or other Inglert programming ties your brand to a local legacy, the Inglert Theater, and your support of the Inglert now means more than ever before. In 2020, we experienced a significant revenue shortfall brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Through this financially tumultuous time, we're producing new digital productions, including this podcast, our Stages Concert Series, and Witching Hour Festival, all to inspire positive community growth through the arts. Packages range from $100 on up. Our investment in the arts community is only possible with support from sponsors like you, and art supporters are known for supporting those that support the arts. Visit englert.org slash sponsorship for all of the information about how to advertise. I mean, you're listening right now. Place your ad here, englert.org slash sponsorship. Franklin Matangi was born and raised in rural western Kenya, where he fell in love with radio at a young age. He moved to the U.S. in 2017 and spent two years in Bowling Green, Ohio, before moving to Iowa City. He is now a PhD student at the University of Iowa in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. His best show ever experience features Iowa Andy, a co-ed Bollywood fusion dance team representing the university. Franklin, it is so wonderful to meet you. Thank you for coming on to the best show ever podcast today. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Can you talk about where from Kenya you're from, what part of Kenya um, and what uh, home life looked for you growing up, just briefly. So I'm from Western Kenya, close to the border with Uganda, um, a town called Mumias. And then, um, so I grew up in Mumias. It's a rural area. Growing up, um, I was brought up by my grandparents. So they are small-scale farmers. So we grew up. I grew up in the farm, just growing, growing corn growing sweet potatoes growing all all other kinds of vegetables that just normally people grow but then they were just vegetables meant for subsistence farming like just to be used domestically at home Hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so corn to corn already connection from kenya to iowa (laughs) (laughs) probably aren't many but there's one um in an international student spotlight write-up that i read you mentioned that you weren't sure you were going to be able to get through high school due to financial barriers. And now you are a PhD student here in the United States. What did it take you, what did it take for you to get from, you know, that early struggle to where you are now in your education? Yeah, during my early years, it was really hard and I actually never saw 
like if someone had asked me during those time that I'll even finish my bachelor's degree, I would have told them that was that was an impossible dream because mm. growing up I would go I'll have I'll I'll go to work like sometimes cause my grandparents sometimes couldn't afford to pay for my school fees and during that time we had to pay it wasn't even primary school which is like grade school here in the US we had to pay for school during that time but my grandparents couldn't afford sometimes and so sometimes i was even forced to go and work for people on their farm so they will give me some money and then i'll go pay to school go back to school sometimes i have no money i go home, stay at home i have no money and then um when i was still in grade school my, i have my older brother and um he never went to high school and so just looking at him not going to high school even though he was very smart i was like okay if he didn't go and he's my older brother i don't see myself going but then i was just like okay even though i want to go to high school whatever i'm going to reach at let me do my level best and so when i finished um grade school which we call primary school in kenya i had actually really performed well i was sec- i came up second so we normally take national exams so i was second in my um in that school and um so yeah i was called some really nice high national high schools but i couldn't afford it so i just went to a local high school i went to a school where we had no electricity we had no running water we had no labs like wow. we would do experiments like chemistry experiments outside under a tree and but still <laughs> but still i'm grateful that um i worked really hard i did all i could sometimes I remember when I was in high school like I would be in school for one month the next month I'm home because I don't have money to pay for school fees and then mm. I'll stay home for like a month and then the community will come together contribute some money give me the like they come together contribute money give me the cash I go pay go study for like two months then all of a sudden no oh, we need school fees again and then I'm chased back home I have no money then I go mm. stay there for some time until when i was um during when my third year we call it form 3 in kenya that's when my uncle my uncle had been studying his bachelor's degree so he had just finished his degree and then he came to school where i was he came and talked to the to the principal of the school where i was studying and then requested him if he could come and teach to that school so that his salary could go to my fees and so that's wow. how i ended up finishing high school and then when i finished high school i actually passed and so i passed with a grade that will el- allow me or enable me to get some funding from the government and so i enrolled that's how i ended up enrolling to kisi university it's one of the universities in kenya then i finished my bachelor's degree i was able to through government funding support from other people from my like my community members supporting me contributing money to support me and university faculty and staff actually also coming together and just contributing money to support me that's how i finished until and i remember even coming to the us like i couldn't still come so i still depended on people contributing money but then mm-hmm. thank god now that i'm in the us i'm working as a research assistant so i'm good yeah mm-hmm. and i i bet all those people who helped you or or watched you throughout that journey are just so proud to see you where you are now i'm sure that means a lot to a lot of people yes so i have my friend from california and he he was asking me that how comes when you post something on facebook you just get so many comments of people so proud <laughs> of you and then i was telling him okay you see 
it's because of the journey of where I came from. So many people have seen me along the way. So many people have supported me. And I've always tried my level best to make sure that I don't disappoint them because I know people denied themselves. Maybe someone will have used them whatever money they supported me with to do something else, maybe do something fun, mm. invest the money in their project, but then they contributed the money to support me. And so I always try to make them proud and I hope I'm still doing it. I think um, education on all levels is something in the United States a lot of us take for granted a lot. Do you ever, I don't know, find yourself in conversations with your classmates and maybe you're just like, I don't know, realize what you have sort of thing? Because I find myself taking for granted or I, along my higher education journey, just like, not appreciating it as as much as I should have. And I'm curious if like you ever get frustrated when people just like don't realize what they have. Yeah, so I've had people ask me why I'm always, always just very passionate about education. Like they're like, oh, your passion is just different. Like I've never seen someone, because for me, I can dedicate my entire time just on education. I leave everything else, anything fun, nothing. I don't, I'm like, education first and I think this stems from it's a culture that has been like we've grown up within Kenya because I've seen most of my friends actually also this way but it's just a culture in Kenya and I remember when I was in high school we had this math teacher who used to tell us that uh, the roots of education are very bitter but the fruits are very sweet and so I always have since mm-hmm. high school, I still know that saying. <laughs> Every time I remember, I'm like, hey, there is no way I'm going to let myself down. I have to keep going because only education is going to pull myself out of poverty. So I just have mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent mantra. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a lot of, you know, when I went to college, I had plenty of friends say they were homesick or it was culture shock, but certainly <laughs> moving from Kenya to the Midwest had to have entailed a lot of (laughs) actual culture shock and a lot of actual homesickness. And I'm sure you get this question all the time, but what do you miss most about living in Kenya? Um, So Kenya is more of um, a collectivist society. And so like I always had like hundreds of friends around me and then I came to an, more of an individualistic country where, like, even I tell my family that, hey, do you know that where I'm living, I live alone. None of my neighbors know knows me. Like, nobody knows me. I'm just living by myself. And they're like, oh, what kind of a country is that? Because <laughs> growing up, like, we always had people around us and, like, we're always playing with kids and, like, always interacting with people. But then that culture is a bit different here. But then the only good thing is here, in as much as it's a more of an individualistic culture, but then you also get to be more productive because you have all this time with you to do whatever you want. And like on, on the other side where in Kenya, you always have friends, like maybe you want to do something and then someone, a friend comes and tells you, oh, I'm doing this, please come and join me. You stop whatever you are doing and then you go and join. But in the US, you have to set up an appointment. You're like, oh, you don't have an appointment. <laughs> you never told me that in advance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that is true too. That is so true. Very interesting. And then I guess other things, just like I miss food. 
Um, I miss going out on safaris because the Midwest is just too flat and there's just nothing. Okay, not saying nothing, but there is very little that you can go and like see or anything fascinating things that you can do. There are um, trails around that you can walk and enjoy. But in Kenya, you go on safaris, we have wild animals, we have mountains. And so it was much more fun. But then, yeah, Midwest also has its share value of nice things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we're pretty flat. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to agree with you. It's flat, <laughs> not, not a lot to look at, you know, <laughs> some cornfields and such. So, yeah, don't don't blame you at all on that one. <laughs> um, so you're known for obviously be- being very dedicated to your education, your work, your studies. And you're also known for being an advocate for international students particularly working with ISSE, the International Student Support and Engagement Group. Um, what does you know this organization seek to provide for multicultural and international students? What are some of the goals and resources trying to be created there? Yeah, so ISSS, and especially right now, I'm currently a member of I'm actually the communications director. So I'm a member of um, the International Student Advisory Board. And uh, basically what we do is we advocate for international students, just making sure that international students are leading a comfortable life on campus. If there are any challenges that they're experiencing, we come together, we get to discuss every, all the issues that might be might arise. And then um, we present the issues to the international office or the authorities in charge, so if it's the graduate college or whatever. And so, yeah, basically what we do is we advocate for international students just to make sure that um, everyone, like students are leading a comfortable life. They are not uh, going through any challenges. And if they are going through any challenges, like they know who to address because sometimes you might go through a challenge, but you don't know who is going to help you address the challenge. And so... Mm -hmm. Knowing who to address, knowing where to raise your issue is very important. And actually, this issue of advocating stems from um, my life experience and like my dedication to serving other people, service to humanity just stems from just the extent with which other people have supported me. So I tend to believe that since I'm in the U.S., I'm just a grad student. I don't have money to pay back to people who are supporting me. But the best thing that I can do to to pay back or for me to feel that satisfaction that, yes, I'm giving back to the community is to offer my service where I can. And where I can is where I am right now. And so, yeah, that's why I prefer dedicating almost everything that I have, dedicating my time um, advocating for international students and serving on as many committees as possible. Just making sure that, yeah, people have a smooth time on campus because grad school sometimes can be very depressing. And so mm-hmm. you don't want to be depressed with teaching, learning, taking classes yourself. Um, you are teaching, you are grading, you're taking classes yourself, you have assignments waiting for you, and then you have other challenges again to deal with. That can be really depressing, in addition to missing your family and being in a foreign country. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think anyone can agree that grad school, any mm-hmm. any higher education, just entails a lot of stress, 
um, a lot of self-sacrifice and then yes, having the added stressors of language barriers, not being already connected with the community, not knowing a lot of people being disconnected from your, like, I just can't even imagine (laughs) the mental strength, (laughs) the mental strength and discipline it takes to continue to excel through all of the barriers that are that come with being an international student. Yes, I um, remember um, I had a friend. So I first I was first in Ohio before I came to Iowa, mm-hmm. and I had this friend from Tanzania. I'm from Kenya. Tanzania is a neighboring country to Kenya, and um, like we both speak Swahili, same language. We have our tribal languages which are different, but then we have same national language. And every time she'll she'll just come to me and be like, okay, Franklin, I just need someone to speak Swahili to. I've been speaking English for so long that my head can't function anymore because this is a foreign language that you're not used to speaking. And so now you have to speak it all the time. You have no Mm -hmm. one else to speak with in your local language or national language. Yeah, sometimes it can be really depressing, but... As time goes by, maybe I guess you just get used to. Like for me right now, I'm used to it. And with my shampoo, crazy English that sometimes people don't understand, I just keep moving with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's reassuring that there is a resource like ISSE, um, mm-hmm. other resources on campus for international students for, yeah, even if just, you know, just to get together and speak, your, the native language, just like I can only imagine how cathartic that must feel. Okay, so now it's time to hear a little bit about your best show ever experience. Give us the story. You know, who was there? Where was it? When was it? The smells, the taste, all the details. Now, in I, I'll go back to the event in 2019 because after COVID happened, most of us have been staying indoors. Mm -hmm. So there was an event at uh, the University of Iowa's Hancha Auditorium. The event was a dance event by the South Asian Student Organization. I think the organization is called ANTHI, A-N-D-H-I, Iowa ANTHI. And... um, this event, there were other groups as well. There were other competing groups as well, and people were dancing several South Asian dances. And so I went there because growing up, like, I mean, I'm always interested in dances. So growing up, even when I was on campus, I was, even in high school, I used to dance, but um, folk dance, I don't know if you know what that is. Folk dance is like, traditional dances, African traditional dances. And so I used to do that. I I competed up to national level in Kenya. Wow. I went twice in 2013 and 2014 up to national level. And so, yeah, so I have this friend called Subin. He's, he's from India. So when he told me that there was this event that we could go and um, attend, I was like, of course, yes, if it's dancing, I'm definitely in. And then I went there and just getting to see dances from other cultures as well because all i knew was and let me not even say african culture maybe i should say just two of the tribes cultures because africa has thousands of different cultures and so Mm -hmm. i can't really generalize that that was african culture but um going at least to experience 
cultural dances from other communities outside the African continent. I thought that was fascinating. I was like, yeah, let me go and see how that is going to turn out. And so when I went, I went with Subin, my friend, and it was actually really fun. I really enjoyed it. I loved it. Mm, yeah, did you want to get on stage? Just get up <laughs> I, there. <laughs> I would have messed up their dance, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love that example. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Best show ever experience with us and for coming on to the podcast today. It's really been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and hopefully people will enjoy listening to the podcast. Our song of the week is Orchrist from the Iowa City group Dryad. It comes from their album The Silurian Age, which is all about fighting corruption and evil with the magic glowing sword. Could you ask for a better theme than that? I think not. They're going to have a second pressing of their anthology tape, which includes the track coming out in the near future, which sounds like a great way to support a killer local band. Here's the song Orchrist by Dryad.
Serving the Iowa City area, Martin Construction was voted Best Home Improvement Company by Little Village in 2019 and 2020. Martin Construction is here to improve your home and lifestyle, incorporating the best design, products, workmanship, service, and trade partners, and with the lowest impact on your personal and global environment. Visit them online at andrewmartinconstruction.com. Martin Construction, member of the Greater Iowa City Home Builders Association and Johnson County Affordable Housing Coalition. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs and by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peer United States Regional Arts Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.